Good morning. It's great to see you here this uh, Sunday after the 4th. I hope you had a really good 4th. We did something different this year. We went over to uh, Watertown on the 3rd of July and joined the Ruggles over there and the Millers went with us and watched the fireworks. They're great. It's like a hidden secret. Maybe all of you already know this because you're from the area. I'm from Minnesota. I don't know these things. But anyway, we were right next to the field where they shot out the fireworks. I said, wow, these are awesome. Fireball goes off. I could feel the heat of it. It was a, it was a great evening uh, of, of enjoying people with pyro skills. Anyway, um, today we're going to talk on a topic matter of adversity. Uh, we're in the middle of this Here to There series of messages, and in this series of messages, which are very long, 17 weeks long, we've divided into different legs. We're in the last leg of the journey. We're in Omaha, looking to Brookings now. We're getting, our, 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 getting, getting to home. And today we're going to talk about this topic of adversity. Is it a friend or is it a foe? And frequently the way you turn it from foe to friend is to quit questioning God and begin to question what God is up to in your life through this thing that you're facing. That's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. Our goal in all these series of messages is to look a lot more like Jesus. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, definitely was familiar with adversity, amen, and handled it correctly. Perhaps in your life you've gone through some tough things. I know I've gone through a multitude of tough things. Maybe you were abused, and that's left a scar in your heart. Maybe you uh, are one that's had a severe uh, handicap or had some kind of uh, physical thing happen to you that's been very difficult. Maybe, maybe you know what, you've been through a divorce that's kind of left you a bit shattered or experienced what it means to have someone that's been unfaithful to you in a relationship. Uh, maybe you've lost someone you've loved. It's really difficult when that person's young. Yeah, and, and, and they pass away. It just really, really does something to a, a person to go through that. Maybe you've had a harsh parent that you're still trying to please and you're like 50 years old. And this parent just set you on a course of life that's really difficult if you think about it. Um, maybe it's something like an unfair job situation. Someone got promoted when you ought to have got promoted. Or maybe you're dealing with some kind of addiction. And you wonder, why do I have this addiction? Nobody else seems to have this addiction. And on and on I could go. You kind of get the sense. We, we face these adverse situations in our life. Frequently the question that we ask is, why me? But really the question behind the question is a little more subtle. Really when we say, why me? Really what we're saying is, God, why are you letting this happen to me? We may not verbalize it that way, but that's really the implication of that question. Some are very forthright in their questioning of God. Some will say, why does a good God let bad things happen to Good people, you know, that kind of questioning that really gets you nowhere. Dennis Rainey, a Christian author and teacher, addressed this kind of questioning of God in an article entitled My Soapbox, Why, uh, When Life Doesn't Seem Fair. Listen to this. I'm going to just read it to you. I may never buy another Hershey's chocolate candy bar for my kids to split. No, not the solid milk chocolate with the squares, the ones with the almonds. There's absolutely no way to break it into equal shares. My children's cries of injustice erupt as soon as they receive their portion. Not fair, Benjamin got a bigger piece, says one child, or the exasperating whine of another announcing, Ashley got three almonds, I didn't get any, it's not fair. One standard and dispassionate response has become, that's right, life isn't fair. Okay, parents, how many of you have said that? Yeah, you're raising your hands. Hey, I should raise your hands without even asking you. 
Yeah, we say to our kids, life isn't fair. We finally devise a solution. We let one of them break the candy bar in half, and then the other child gets to choose which half they want. It's fascinating to watch them break that candy bar in half with the intention of a neurosurgeon because they don't want their sibling to get the greater half. I wish fairness could be solved this easily. Most things, however, do not divide into equal portions. Life isn't fair. Sometimes our portion of life doesn't seem right. Our portion isn't milk chocolate, it's bittersweet. Sometimes it's just plain bitter. A divorced mother of three preschoolers shouldn't have to work two jobs alone while her irresponsible ex-husband parties and plays and neglects child support. A 34-year-old father of two little girls ages two and four shouldn't die suddenly of a heart attack while on vacation with his family. A 10-year-old boy killed by a drunk driver That's not fair when the drunk driver gets off with just a hangover and some bruised ribs. It's not fair that a child has an operation on his appendix and gets AIDS through a disease-infected blood transfusion. Left to my human reason, Rainey says, these painfully unjust circumstances don't seem to resemble, even remotely, our standard of fairness. They cause me to question, to wonder, and to shake my head. Why, I ask. Maybe the fairness question needs to go down a notch, and we're all going to relate to it a little bit more than one of these kinds of tragedies. You may wonder, why aren't I better with words? Why aren't I more open? Why don't I ever feel free just to laugh and enjoy the moment I find myself in? Why do I have a bent to get so angry at the ones I ought to love the most? Why did I come from the family I came from? Why do I have no relationship with my parents? Have you ever felt that it was unfair that you had a father that didn't love you or a mother or a brother or sister that you relationally struggled with? Have you ever wondered why do I have the body shape I have or the size of my body or the color of my hair or the color of my eyes or the color of my skin or maybe a birth defect? Why, why do cheaters prosper and seem to get by with so many things in life while the honest seem to struggle so much? Life isn't fair. Life doesn't always deliver equal portions to everyone. Our problem is that we only see in the dimension of time and perspective that we have as a human being. We, we don't understand that the one over us is weaving a tapestry to our lives with eternal purposes. We arrogantly presume that we're the best judge of fairness and equality. Our limited perspective leads us to compare to what others have and causes us to envy. Here's our big thought this morning. I really want you to hold on to this big thought because I think there's some real merit to it today. We often look at fairness as sameness, which is a mistake. Okay? We often look at fairness as sameness, and that is a mistake. God works in each person according to what that person needs. He's the best judge of what is fair. It would be incredibly unfair if God treated you and I all, this, all of us the same. Because we don't need the same experiences. We don't need the same things to occur in our lives. What we need is a God that sees us individually and knows what is best for us and works accordingly. Do you agree with me on that? We need to lose the fairness question. We need to just get that out of our vocabulary. Jesus told a parable that deals with this issue of fairness. I think it helps tremendously in answering the question of why does God let something happen in my life? 
Now, a parable is just a short story with a moral message. So listen to the parable of the workers in the vineyard found in Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read the whole thing, verses 1 through 16. Listen to this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon, and about three in the afternoon did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them the wages, beginning with the last ones hired, going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give, to, uh, give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, some of us have been around Christianity for a long time. And we know some of the implications of this parable. The idea here, one of the implications is this. Some of us are going to come to the Lord Jesus Christ early in our lives. And we're going to serve him all the days that we have on this earth and, and, and end up with this free gift of salvation, right, at the end of our days. Amen, right? Some are going to come at the last hour. And they're going to be born again in Jesus Christ. And they're going to get the same gift that you and I get, eternal life through Jesus Christ, by no merit of our own. It's a free gift whether you've served him long or short. Amen? And as Christ followers, we think that's okay. Right? You better say right. <laughs> but I think where this problem comes in is my life and my suffering doesn't look like your life and your suffering. That's usually where the fairness question rears uh, its ugly head, actually. So here's another big point to this parable that's often overlooked that's equally important to this idea that God awards us not by what we do, but by who he is. It's this idea that, that and, and, and in this parable, the landowner is God, okay? God, the owner, has the right to give and withhold as he determines. That's another big point of this parable. God, the owner, has the right to give and withhold as he determines. And sub-point A here is simply this. God must be seen as sovereign. Sovereign. Now, when I use that word sovereign, it means he's the ruler of supreme in power. He's independent of all others and over all others. We have got to see that God is over us. And we have got to lose the comparison to one another and lose the fairness questioning from our vocabulary. Because God is sovereign. Often when God is being questioned, what's really being questioned is, do you have the right to rule over my life, God? That's really the question behind the question. Especially when there's a question of fairness and what, why did this happen to me in my life? Really what we're doing is questioning God's sovereignty. We have to get to the point we know that God knows best for us. Amen? We don't know even what's best for ourselves. He gives and withholds accordingly. You know what is really covering about God being sovereign is this. It's coupled with some other revelation about him. He's also loving. 
He's also kind. He's also generous. He's also merciful. In fact, his mercies are new every morning. If you have sovereignty without the coupling of those kind of attributes, that's terrifying. But God has revealed that not only is he sovereign, all-powerful, he's all-loving, right? He cares about you and I. He's generous to us. He's merciful to us. And he knows what's best for us. I don't know how you are when it comes to this thing of, 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 of fairness. We just don't see each other correctly. Would you agree with me on that? We see through our life filters. We see through our perspectives. We look at other people. We have no idea what's going on in their life and when we actually begin to look at each other and compare and start having this question of fairness bubble up to the surface really what we're doing is we're just looking through a dirty window we just can't see each other clearly comparing with others is like looking through a dirty window it's really hard to see clearly Uh, at best it's cloudy we just need to quit doing it story is told of a pastor that went to visit one of his parishioners as the discussion was lagging a little bit. Uh, she looked out the window and, and grabbed their pastor's attention. They both looked out the window and they saw the, the neighbor's laundry hung out. And she said, the neighbor always hangs out dirty laundry. Look at that. Well, that made the pastor very uncomfortable. And so he began to try to figure out ways to get out of her house. And if you're a pastor, some of you would know what I'm talking about. And so he kind of brought the meeting to an end and thought, I, I need to get out of here. And so they get out on the porch and they glance over and they see the laundry from the porch. It's sparkling white, beautifully clean. And they both realize at the same time that the laundry's not dirty, it's her window that's dirty. Now we love a story like that, don't we? Because we say, gotcha, you judgmental woman, right? Or man, I don't want to be, by any way, implying it's just about women, all right? You know, we love that story because we got it. But, but get this. We, we got to understand this personally. When we, when I, if I were to look at Sean's life or Bruce's life and I begin to compare or, or whatever, I, I, cannot act, I cannot do that accurately because I'm going to look at his life through my clouded perspective, through my dirty window, through my life experiences, through my time frame and all that kind of stuff. And it, I cannot come to a right conclusion very rarely. And all that does is work in me envy. We have to quit asking the fairness question and we have to begin to understand that God is sovereign. In fact, we need to become convictional about this. This is our application point here already this morning. Become convictional that God's working in your life for your benefit. That has to begin to rule your thought process. Whatever you're going through, you have to become convictional that God is working this for my good. Amen? (laughs) That wasn't as loud of an amen as I hoped it would be. We have to realize whatever you go through, God is working it for your good. When I was a young man, I heard a teaching that really changed my viewpoint of parenting. It was a teaching from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. And the teaching says this, at least that scripture says this, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they'll not depart from it. And the misuse of this scripture, I think, a little bit is this. If I train up this kid, hey, they might be a hellion for 10 years, right? But they're going to come back to Jesus someday. 
don't ever say that to me. Because that's a totally wrong take on that scripture. What that scripture is saying is this. When it says train up a child, it says understand who your child is. Understand their personality. Understand their bent. Understand their weaknesses. Understand their strength. And you as a parent, train them accordingly. And if you do, when they're old, when they reach puberty, they'll not depart from the Lord. It's not like I train up this kid and, oh, please, God, when they're 50, let them come back to Jesus. Sorry, that was really more emotional than I meant it to be. But it's all about this understanding that the kid you have is an individual. Look at them. Understand them. Research them. Train them accordingly so that they know the things of Jesus in a way they can understand them. I have six kids. Not one of them is the same. They're entirely different. It's always a new experience. So my oldest gal, she's compliant. And I remember when you'd have to get after her, she would cry before you did anything. You would just look at her and she'd go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, I won't do it again. Second one comes along, oh my goodness. That, you know, I remember one time she got a little bit of trouble and I, she got a little spank. We didn't do that very often, just so you know that, okay? And her words were, that didn't hurt. And you go, now what do we do? The book doesn't say anything about this. <laughs> but you have to train them according to their bent. They're different. They're individual. Sameness isn't fairness. To treat them all the same is unfair. It's unloving. It's not right. God trains you and I that exact same way. I am not the same as you are. And you're not the same as I am. And God's not going to treat us the same way because that's not right. He's going to bring things into our life that are meant for us and for our good and for our development and our growing up in our holy faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this brings us to question number two, or point number two here, excuse me. It is a question. Instead of questioning God, questioning his goodness, questioning who he is, ask questions of how God can use adversity to work good in your life. See, that's turning adversity from a foe to a friend. Amen? Instead of questioning God, because people do this a lot, they question God, his right to rule, his goodness, his intentions, lose that line of questioning. Never going to help. It's not appropriate. Instead, say, God, what are you trying to do in my life through these things I have to go through? What are you up to? What am I to learn? How am I being developed? How am I to conform to Christ in the middle of this circumstance? I have some examples, some questions that I think really help in this questioning in the right way. There are just examples. You're going to come up with some own questions of your own that are probably equally as good or maybe better. Use them. First question I frequently ask is this. How can whatever the trial is, whatever the adversity is, produce humility in me? How can this produce humility in me as a person? Here's why I say this. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace and empowerment to the humble. Proverbs 22, 4 says uh, that humility and fear of the Lord, that's the uh, beginning of wealth and honor in life. Proverbs 6 says this, God detests haughty eyes, the proud look. 
Humility is just like foundational to our development as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're facing some adversity, you're facing some tough situations, the first thing you can ask is, God, okay, what is this working in me? How is this making me more dependent on you? How is this creating humility in me? If you do that, you've changed adversity from a foe to a friend already. Amen? Because you're becoming receptive to what God is up to and you become one who's open to the power of God flowing through your life. Another possible question to ask is this. How can blank produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit within me? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23 lists what the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is the fruit we ought to be bearing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when you're facing some adversity, you can begin to say, God, how is this to produce the gifts of the Holy Spirit in me? You see, until you really have it happen until you have to face some adversity. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit we talked about, they're just like a plaque on the wall, but God wants you to really live it out. Are any of you patient in here? Nobody raised, oh, one raised their hand, Steve. Okay, I think you are patient, Steve. I agree with that on you. I am not a patient person. In fact, I would classify myself as fairly impatient. And oftentimes, adversity is an opportunity to learn patience. I mentioned we went to Watertown to watch the fireworks, right? Well, jokingly, I said when we got there and the fireworks hadn't started, I said, I need to leave so I can beat the traffic. And the sad thing was, two of them said, we were wondering how long it would take for you to say that. I said, oh, am I that impatient? Is it that obvious? And I had come up with a plan and talked to Vicky about this. We're not going to try to beat the traffic out of Watertown after the fireworks. We're going to go shopping at Walmart instead. Wow, that was a huge step for me. It was uh, one shining moment. <laughs> and, uh, at any rate, try not to look at my wife. Because I don't normally function like that at all. And I thought, i got to learn how to be more patient. And I really have to do it on purpose. Because it is a fruit of the Spirit. When You've been abused as a person. You've been mistreated. Perhaps you've gone through some really difficult things in your life. God says, retaliate with kindness. <laughs> not vengeance, not bitterness, but return kindness for that abuse. That's one of the ways that adversity has turned from a foe to a friend. Ever been in a situation where it's just like super out of control? People maybe are fighting or arguing and there's all kinds of emotionalism going on. God says to you and to me, you be the self-controlled person in this situation because greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. Amen? So adversity provides an opportunity for the fruit of the Spirit to be more than a plaque on the wall. It, it can become something that you actually live out. Next question, how can blank prepare me for future, for the future, or perhaps for future leadership? 2 Timothy 2.12 says that if we endure with the Lord Jesus Christ, if we endure the suffering, if we walk with him, 
we will also reign with him. There's this idea that what you're going through, the things you're facing today, are preparing you to reign for eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, some of them are preparing you maybe for future things that God has for your life, for future leadership he's calling you to. The adversity sometimes is God's training, t- you know, kind of ground to become what you need to become to become an influencer down the road. I was reading an article a long time ago. It's a secular article called Facing Adversity. Let me just read this to you quickly. A difficult childhood can leave some people wounded and disadvantaged for the rest of their lives. But for others, early hardships actually fuel great achievement and success. Victor and Mildred uh, Gortzel investigated the backgrounds of hundreds of highly successful people. They sought to identify the early experiences that may have contributed to this remarkable achievement. Their subjects included Einstein, Freud, Chitterl, and many others. Three fourths of them came from troubled childhoods, enduring poverty, broken homes, or parental abuse. One-fourth had physical handicaps. Most of those who became writers and playwrights had watched their own parents embroiled in psychological dramas of one sort or another. The researchers concluded that the need to compensate for disadvantages was a major factor in the drive towards personal achievement. The application to your own family should be obvious. If your child has gone through a traumatic experience or is uh, physically disadvantaged, don't give up hope. Help identify strengths and natural abilities that can be used to overcome the handicap. Now remember, this is a secular article. Okay, you remembering that? Whether your child's challenges ultimately weaken or strengthen him may be influenced by the way you respond to the crisis. The problem that seems so formidable today may become the inspiration for greatness tomorrow. Now listen, we have Christ in this equation too. And I think God delights in using the brokenness of our lives, the weaknesses of our lives, to show himself strong and to do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. And we have got to instill that in our children, and we have got to believe it for ourselves. Amen? That this is how God frequently works. Otherwise, you're going to look at adversity, and you're going to be hopeless. But if you look at adversity correctly, you're going to say, oh, this is a helpful tool that God is unleashing in my life to move me from here to there. So I become someone that I'm not presently. That I become more than I thought I could become in Christ Jesus. Amen? And oftentimes, the tools of diversity. When I, when I grew up, uh, my mom discovered by three years of age that I wasn't speaking. And so she brought, now, well, that wasn't normal. So anyway, she brought me to the doctor and he said, oh, this is a simple problem. His ears are full of junk. And so we'll just flush those out, and he'll be able to see, or he, see, <laughs> hear. And so they were unplugged, and I began to hear, but I had missed out on some critical hearing in my life. And so I got enrolled in speech classes, special ed. I don't think they call that that anymore. Anyway, I was in speech classes all the way through fourth grade. I hated those things learning how to form basic sounds and saying certain words I couldn't say. It was very uh, difficult for me, and I had no confidence whatsoever in speaking, especially any kind of public, upfront kind of speaking. And so I began a journey in my life of avoidance of doing that all through high school and college. Anytime they had, I avoided it. I avoided any class that had speech involved with it, as much as possible. I don't want to do anything like that because I had no confidence whatsoever. So then I started feeling God calling me into the ministry. This is ironic because I hated upfront stuff. I hated speaking. I thought I couldn't do it. 
And I remember having a real heart-to-heart conversation when I got serious about accepting a call here at Brookings with Pastor Tim at the time. Can I pastor without ever having to speak in front of anybody? (laughs) I was dead serious. And he said no. He was a compassionate guy. At any rate, I began then to struggle with that concept because I thought, God, I don't understand why you would do this to me. Why you'd call me out of a really successful career where I seem to have skills in the science side of life into something where I have zero confidence. And I begin to realize it would require greater dependence on him than I ever had experienced before in my life to do this. And I begin to say, okay, God, if you call me to do this, then you'll equip me to accomplish it. And that became kind of one of my life sayings. I say it frequently here at Grace Point. What God calls you to, he will what? Equip you to accomplish. And I'm not just saying that as some flippant saying. I'm saying that because that's my life. And that's your life too. What God has called you to do, I don't care what your weaknesses are. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what you've gone through. He will equip you to accomplish it. Amen? Amen? D, is blank God's loving discipline to correct me? Sometimes we're just doing some things wrong and adversity is a way of getting our attention that we're doing some things wrong. Amen? There's a natural law. There's spiritual law that we got to understand there's cause and consequences. If I drop something up here, natural law says it'll what? It's going to fall. Same thing's true for our spiritual side of our, our, of our existence. If things aren't going well in your life, and maybe you're having all kinds of relational issues, you know one of the things I always ask people when they're having all kinds of relational issues, how do you do with the fifth commandment? They go, what? I said, the fifth commandment says this, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. And you may live long on the earth. What? Do you honor your mom and dad? Well, they're not honorable. I don't care if you, it, does, it doesn't say, honor your mom and dad if they're honorable. It says, honor your mom and dad. Not one of us have perfect parents, amen? I am, I'm parents to six kids. I sometimes go, I did terrible. You don't honor them because they're honorable. You honor them because God says so, that it may go well with you. Sometimes I see people in financial difficulties. I'll say, do you give? I don't have money to give. No, you can't afford not to give. Because it's not about the giving. It's about your heart and where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And if you're not willing to give to God, your heart's going to be far from God. And he's not going to bless you. And if you will give, if you will just give to him and relinquish the things of this world, he says, I'm going to bless you anyway. You want to be blessed? Give. You do what you want with that. doesn't make sense, humanly speaking, but most of the things of God don't, do they? Last week we talked about this idea. Do you have fear in your life? Because God says fear not 366 times. Fear not, fear not. Because you're a redeemed people in Jesus Christ. So if you're fearing, that's because something isn't aligned right in your life. And, and, and as redeemed people, we are to fear not. As redeemed people, we got to understand. we got to understand that Jesus is in our present situation. Perhaps you're fearing because you don't really believe that. As a person who's redeemed, we're to fear not because we got this personal transformation going on, this personal interaction going on with God, this intimacy going on with God. And maybe you're resisting what God wants to do in your life. That's why you're fearing. You got to understand cause and effect. Sometimes we fear for the future. Well, what's Jesus doing? Even now, he's preparing a place. He's making provision for us. We're to fear not, fear not. If you're fearing, 
Go back to the rakast. Let's go to E. Did blank happen because we live in a sin-filled world? Sometimes bad stuff happens just because we live in a cruddy place. Amen? I don't mean that derogatory. I think the mountains are beautiful. I think the plains of South Dakota are beautiful. But sometimes bad things happen. and Sometimes we face adversity simply because we live in a sin-soaked world. David in the Old Testament and gang were undergoing a three-year famine. And instead of blaming God, David began to inquire of the Lord, why are we going through this famine, God? What is up with this? And God revealed to David that you're going through this because your predecessor, King Saul, did not treat the Gibeonites right like I told him to. Therefore, you're suffering some consequences. David didn't do anything wrong. Saul did it wrong. David repented, and God blessed them. Now, not all of our stories have a neat packaged ending like that. Sometimes things happen to us simply because we live with sin all around us. If nothing else, we can relate to Jesus Christ, our Lord, more when we suffer because of that, because Jesus did nothing wrong ever. But because of our sin, he suffered and went to the cross. So sometimes, if you're going through some tough things, it's just so that you can relate to Jesus more, amen? And know his mind and his soul better. At any rate, I'm going to stop there because if I keep going on, I'll just say things I regret. Um, so where are you at right now today with this whole adversity thing? I know some of you are going through some really hard things. Sometimes adversity isn't all that hard. Sometimes it's just merely you never get a good night's sleep because you've got little kids. I know that. Six kids, sleep deprivation, it's hard. After a while, you go, why won't this kid just sleep at night? You know, and, and so maybe God is teaching you that sleep isn't that important. You didn't want to hear that answer, did you? <laughs> I don't have a better answer than that for some of this stuff. Some of this stuff is just teaching us that we can endure and stand fast in Christ even when we're going through very difficult things, amen? I mean, Adversity, don't think of it as this horrendously hard thing all the time. It's, it's kind of like conflict. It's always around you. <laughs> You're always going to face some things of adversity. How will you respond? Will you be teachable? Will you be humble? Will you ask the right kind of questions? Instead of questioning God, will you question what God is doing and how this is going to make you look more like Jesus Christ? If you're going to do that, you're going to turn it from a foe to a friend. And that's what I want you to do. And now we're on our last leg. We're seeing Brookings. We're in Omaha. We're going to talk on diversity here for the next couple more weeks and hopefully bring this thing home in a few weeks. And then we're on to a different series. Would you bow your heads? Lord God, I want to thank you for this morning and for this brief look into this topic, matter of diversity. It's just like we're just uh, at the tip of this thing, Lord, just at seeing a little bit of the iceberg above the water today. But I pray, Lord God, that um, you would even now begin to work in some who have gone through some very difficult things here. And every one of us is at some level of adversity in our lives right now. So I pray that we grab a hold of this idea that you're sovereign, God, that you have our best interest at heart of whatever you do. I pray that we quit questioning you and your goodness and your right to rule in our life and begin to question what, what am I supposed to be learning through this adversity, Lord? And, and begin to ask the right kind of questions. Some examples that were given today would be appropriate, Lord, for that kind of questioning. I, I just pray, God, that we really experience this whole reality that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, that we would understand that in Christ we indeed are more than overcomers, that we really would understand that diversity can be a friend if we 
use it as a tool to conform to Christ and not something that causes us to be hopeless, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and we praise your most holy name today. And all God's people said, 